second day of our conference on the public interest and the making of American foreign policy, 1965 to 2005, sponsored by the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton. Uh, this morning, we're going to begin uh, with uh, a panel on uh, 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 the character of American capitalism. Uh, this is uh, a theme that the public interest uh, uh, had a lot to say about. Um, unfortunately, uh, two uh, of our distinguished uh, panelists uh, weren't able to be here today. Uh, Michael Novak, who had originally uh, uh, enthusiastically agreed to participate, uh, had to uh, pull out about a week ago uh, because of uh, his wife's illness. And uh, then uh, Murray Wiedenbaum uh, uh, sat uh, on the tarmac in St. Louis for an ungodly amount of time yesterday, finally to have his flight canceled. He got another one to LaGuardia. It was canceled. And uh, so, so poor Murray, who really did want to be here at his alma mater, uh, he received his PhD in economics from Princeton University, had not been here for a while. He indeed had to uh, send us the bad news that he wasn't going to make it. Uh, the good news is that uh, our moderator, John Londrigan, uh, here in the Department of Politics in the Woodrow Wilson School, um, will uh, has has uh, agreed to uh, assist Wiedenbaum by reading Wiedenbaum's remarks, which he has sent us uh, as of as of last night. So anyway, welcome, John. Okay, so so I'm I'm afraid I'm a fairly poor substitute for uh, for Professor Wiedenbaum, but I'll I'll do my best to fill in. Um, so these are, these are the remarks that he would have been delivering this morning had this storm not intervened. Um, <clears throat> so he begins. From the vantage point of late 2006, it takes a real effort to recall the vastly different economic policy thinking that prevailed in the United States four decades ago. The focus back then was on increasing the demand for goods and services. Attention to supply factors was often looked upon as an unhelpful diversion. Fiscal policy was the government's key agent to influencing the course of the economy. Monetary policy, when it was considered at all, was a junior partner, even in fighting inflation. At the microeconomic level, government regulation in the main was ignored. Any reference was invariably to the benign effects of the new social regulatory agencies, the federal government, rather than the states, localities, or private institutions, was thought as the, of as the strategic actor in dealing with the major problems facing the society. To highlight the basic contrast between then and now, John Maynard Keynes was considered to be the outstanding economist of the 20th century, Milton Friedman was relegated to a minor dissident role, and Friedrich Hayek was ignored. As I will show, these conclusions do not rely on a faulty and aging memory, nor on the selection of extreme examples. Moreover, subsequent changes in economic thinking and public policy did not come quickly or easily, nor were they all necessarily improvements. Economic policy in the 1960s. A useful starting point is the landmark January 1962 annual report of the Council of Economic Advisors, hereafter the 1962 Economic Report. 
Under the leadership of Walter Heller, the 1962 economic report was written primarily by two stars of the economics profession, James Tobin and Robert Solo, both future Nobel laureates. Many years later, Tobin and I jointly wrote the that the macroeconomics of the Council of Economic Advisors was then the neo-Keynesian mainstream of the profession. Thus, I will cite the 1962 economic report as representative, as the representative and influential example of the economic thinking that prevailed in the early 1960s. Surely the economists involved continued to develop their thinking as they contended with the practical problems of public policy. It would be unfair to criticize the views that they held in that period in light of what we have all learned in the intervening time. Supply and demand. Let us start with some very basic economics, supply and demand. Early on, the 1962 report states that the expansion of demand has been and remains a principal task of government policy. The report goes on to caution the reader, unless demand is adequate to buy potential output, accelerating the growth of potential, that was the then prevailing euphemism for supply, is neither an urgent problem nor a promising possibility. Later in the report, the reader is provided with an even stronger indication of the very different focus in economic thinking that prevailed in the 1960s. Sustained long-run growth of potential supply is both difficult to achieve and pointless of achievement unless the growth of demand keeps pace. In the early 1980s, the emphasis on government economic policy had shifted rather completely. In fact, in 1982, I felt obliged to remind many of my supply-side-oriented associates that Alfred Marshall, the great neoclassical economist, had taught us that supply and demand were the twin blades of the economic scissors. I believe that this more balanced view once again prevails. Fiscal and monetary policy. Let us now consider the respective roles of fiscal policy and monetary policy. The dominance of fiscal policy in the neo-Keynesian consensus in the 1960s was clear. When discussing the possibility of dealing with an inflationary situation, the 1962 report advised us that fiscal policy should be relied upon primarily the role of monetary policy was to fill in the gap in the anti-inflation effort. This quaint view has been replaced as a result of the influential research performed by Milton Friedman and other economists of a more monetarist persuasion. The economics profession surely has come a long way from the thinking behind the section of the 1962 report, which describes the role of monetary ease at full employment. Yes, serious economists back then saw the need for easing up on monetary restraint when the economy was fully employed. My understanding of the preferred allocation of duties between monetary policy and fiscal policy that now prevails is that the Federal Reserve System is looked upon as the primary mechanism for dealing with inflation. The role of fiscal policy is to influence the growth of the real economy, especially in the longer run. Moreover, there is now widespread support for using tax policy to provide additional incentives to work, save, and invest. We should acknowledge, however, that this is a matter of practical political economy excuse me, that as a matter of practical political economy, the short-term stimulating effects of tax cuts are often cited by their proponents. The 1962 report also states that the Kennedy administration sought to make credit available at liberal terms through programs of federal spending and federal insurance and guarantees of private lending. Since then, we have come to understand the limits of these federal pr credit programs. They do little, if anything, to, aid, to add to the nation's total pool of savings available for investment. Rather, these government programs tend to channel available funds to less creditworthy borrowers, whose investments will generally lower returns to, to society, will generate lower returns to society than would result from the normal operation of financial markets. However, to this day, governmental decision makers are slow to learn that economic lesson. Government regulation. 
Unlike its more, more recent successors, the 1962 Economic Report does not contain a section devoted to government regulation, nor is there any allusion to the costs as well as the benefits of federal rulemaking. The report does endorse government efforts to reduce discrimination in the workplace. Indirectly, there's a useful acknowledgement of, the local housing, of local housing construction codes as obstacles to technological change. In the intervening four decades, a widespread and bipartisan consensus in public policy has come to support performing economic analysis of proposed government regulations. The notion that these regulations generate costs as well as benefits has become a commonplace element in debates on specific regulatory issues. Of course, proponents of new or expanded regulations continue to underestimate their costs, just as opponents tend to ignore the benefits. Looking back over the past 40 years, important but ephemeral, ephemeral changes occurred in the area of government responses to wage and price developments. A substantial portion of the 1962 report is devoted to voluntary guidelines for non-inflationary wage and price behavior. This proposed intervention in microeconomic decision-making was justified on the grounds that it is both desirable and practical that discretionary decisions on wages and prices recognize the national interest in the results. The proposed guidelines were a response to a quaint question that the 1962 report raises. How is the public to judge whether a particular wage price decision is in the national interest? In the light of contemporary policy discussions, it seems clear that not only have, answers to economics, have the answers to economic issues changed over the years, but literally so have the questions. I'm not aware of any serious effort these days for the public to pass judgment on individual wage or price decisions, except perhaps for those related, relating to the CEOs of major corporations. In this connection, we must note the unintended but powerful educational benefits that resulted from the promulgation of compulsory wage and price controls in subsequent Republican and Democratic administrations. The bureaucratic activity involved in enforcing these economic controls was accompanied by supply shortages and other counterproductive <coughs> impacts. These negative results caused a shift in attention to the benefits of relying on macroeco the macroeconomic tool of monetary policy to control inflationary forces. The successful anti-inflationary experiences of more recent periods have reinforced that view. The intellectual path from the 1960s to the present. Surely no single individual or organization should ever receive the credit for the progress in economic policy in the United States since the 1960s, nor the blame for policy shortcomings during those four decades. Nevertheless, it is enlightening and heartening to peruse the issues of the public interest, which served as the nation's premier policy periodical during this 40-year period. In these 157 issues, we see the many instances in which hol the holders of different viewpoints could intellectually interact. At the same time, the public interest provided a highly regarded forum for the new ideas departing from the neo-Keynesian consensus. Some specifics may illustrate both points. In the very first issue, published in the fall of 1965, there was presented a truly impressive range of authors. The reader encountered Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Robert Heilbrunner, Robert Nisbet and Jacques Barsoum, Nathan Glazer, Daniel Bell, Robert Solo, and Martin Diamond. A very, rare, a very random sample of subsequent issues yields a fascinating array of economic thinking. Milton Friedman presenting his influential proposals on a free market in education. James Tobin on an income guarantee, which albeit substantially modified, is now embedded in the Internal Revenue Code in the form of, an, of the Earned Income Tax Credit. Thomas Schelling on economics and crime, a field which subsequently has come into its own. <coughs> Joseph Peckman on the perennial concern with taxes and income distribution. Martin Feldstein 
in a prescient analysis of Social Security reform. Edmund Phelps on unemployment policy decades before he received a Nobel for his fundamental contributions in the field. Alan Meltzer, a key contributor to our current thinking on monetary policy. I arbitrarily halt this exercise in reminiscence with a simple and adequate comment, smorgasbord. As an occasional contributor, but far more frequent reader of the public interest, I just note that the publication provided a very special forum for the presentation of new ideas during an important period of challenge and change in the development of the prevailing thinking in the United States. The challenges that lie ahead. Rather than winding up looking to the past, let's identify some current and future challenges to economic policy and thinking. Many of the special economic issues that are and will be facing our country can be summed up with three interrelated statements. Americans consume more than we produce. We invest more than we save. We import more than we export. If Americans save more, the gap between consumption and production likely would decline, and so would the other two gaps. However, it is silly to simply urge our fellow citizens, be patriotic, save more. Rather, adopting a tax system which reduces the burden on saving would help. The challenge is to design such a new revenue code which would both gain public understanding and congressional approval. A related task is to reduce the amount of government borrowing, dis-saving to economists. This leads us to the expenditure side of the budget, where public confidence in the budget process must be restored. Policy advice is needed on how to reverse the explosive growth of the federal pork barrel. Why use the euphemism earmarking? A more logical and acceptable way of allocating public resources has to be developed, covering both civilian as well as military activities. In the longer run, the American people have to come to grips with the growing imbalance between future revenues and future benefits, both in Social Security and the Medicare programs. By no means does this exhaust the potential cha changes in economic policy and, econo and economic thinking. Despite the fundamental advances that have been made in recent decades, students and practitioners of monetary policy need to continue developing improved measurements and operating techniques in both domestic and international finance. The related area of international trade policy is, to state the matter too tersely, in flux. Like the field of tax policy, trade policy debates tend to get bogged down in disputes over focusing on economic growth or identifying winners and especially losers. That, in turn, raises questions not likely to generate permanent answers, especially issues relating to living standards and income distribution, as well as productivity and international competitiveness. Clearly, there's no shortage of public policy issues that deserve and require a forum like the public interest. Whatever the title or organizational forum to be adopted, the need for a replacement is apparent. Well, this is what uh, Professor Wiedenbaum uh, would have shared with us, but unfortunately wasn't able to. Um, now we have a rarity on this panel, a panelist. <laughs> Who showed up. <laughs> a panelist. <laughs> so we're, we're delighted, especially delighted, to have Erwin Seltzer here, um, who will present his own remarks. Uh, which, which I expect will be very cogent. Erwin uh, Seltzer needs, needs little introduction, but let me provide a short one anyway. Um, he's the U.S. economic and political columnist for the Sunday Times of London, a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard, a member of the Board of, Regulatory, uh, of the Regulatory Policy Institute at Oxford. Uh, currently, he's a visiting fellow at Nuffield College. He's held an, a number of distinguished academic appointments and holds a Ph.D. from Cornell University. Dr. Seltzer. <laughs>
they've told me, can you hear me in the back? They told me I have to stretch this out, but uh, <laughs> I'll try not to. Um, this is a sort of daunting assignment. Uh, I got here yesterday, and Bill Crystal was <coughs> talking about his year-end issue. And uh, he said, um, we're going to keep it high class at year-end, so Irwin, don't bother submitting anything. Um, then uh, uh, Adam Wolfson uh, got on and proved how beyond my depth I am when he said, Leo Strauss is now on the lips of everyone. Well, I travel around a lot, and uh, the people I meet, it's not on their lips exactly. Uh, and then uh, Professor Kirsch uh, talked about what he called sensationally bad books on the meaning of neoconservatism, which I assume included mine. Uh, so I was almost going to find a reason why the weather uh, prevented me from getting from the Nassau Inn, but I couldn't <laughs> quite figure it out. Uh, the um, assignment I have is to talk about the modern corporation. Now, I think the reason I got that assignment, rather than the broader one about the economics, uh, uh, broad economic issues covered uh, in the uh, public interest is that I actually still enjoy reading Keynes, uh, which uh, I assume is not allowed, according to Professor Wiedenbaum. Uh, I've never found a completely self-financing tax cut, uh, so I guess that puts me on the wrong side of that argument, although uh, I'm for uh, dynamic scoring, and I worry about the distributional consequences of some of our policies, like free trade. doesn't mean I'm against it, I just worry. Uh, and um, so they've assigned me instead the modern corporation, much narrower, less likely to commit harm. Um, uh, I, talked, I talked to Irving Crystal last week, and I said, you know, Irving, I went through all the issues, and relatively speaking, there's not a lot on economics. And he said, well, that's because there's nothing wrong with the economy. Uh, <coughs> Now, before lapsing into silence on issues related to the modern corporation, which is my assigned topic, uh, and then uh, they turned it over to me at some point uh, in the history of the public interest. I think that's because on uh, Adam Wilson and Irving Crystal's speed dial, they had my number, uh, so I was easier to get. Um, but basically, if you go through the issues, uh, you'll see that what they were was an extension of the argument started in 1932 when Burley and Means uh, first came out with the modern corporation and private uh, property, which raised very serious questions about the role of the modern corporation in American economic life. So anyone with a taste for the literary uh, delight, uh, that is uh, the work of John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, set against the analytical skills of Bob Solo should dip into the 67-68 uh, debate between these uh, titans. And it's a double treat for reasons that I think are instructive. First, and this is a, I guess, a forerunner of later disputes between other uh, disputants in the journal, you have a uh, very high-quality intellectual joust over an issue that is still with us uh, some 40 years later. Do large corporations control the economy? Uh, are their managers free of shareholder control uh, and able to enrich themselves at the expense of the owners of the business? Do managers seek to maximize growth rather than profits? Uh, are consumer wants, in fact, created 
uh, by those who profit from their satisfaction. These are the issues uh, that were going on then. Uh, those are the issues that are going on now. Uh, so that's one reason it's a treat. But a second reason uh, is the style. Uh, the, the public interest succeeded in making itself accessible uh, by allowing its contributors to practice the delicious art of personal vituperation. Um, we have Solo attacking Galbraith, quote, he mingles with the beautiful people. For all I know, he may be a beautiful person himself. Uh, and we have uh, Galbraith responding, Professor Solo is one of the most distinguished and prestigious economists of our time, conscious of his scientific prestige. Uh, he is compulsively negligent of the scientific mood. Uh, now, this is good stuff, and I mention it uh, for two reasons. First, uh, the willingness of the editors of uh, the public interest to sheathe uh, their red pencils uh, in the interest of allowing uh, what I think uh, in Britain is called good knockabout. Uh, that, alas, is uh, no longer practiced by editors of journals of this type. Um, uh, editors, I think, who confuse a monochromatic dullness with scholarship. Uh, I don't want to single out any uh, particular one for comment, uh, so I won't. But um, uh, if you just go through, there's a kind of uh, crystal liveliness to, uh, a glazer liveliness to the uh, a public interest that you don't really see more. And that cont contributed enormously to its uh, accessibility. The other thing is that until then, accessibility uh, was really monopolized by uh, more left-wing economists. I always wondered why the best writers were on the left of the economic profession. Think of Keynes. I mean, I have 21 volumes of Keynes on my shelf. I can pull it off and read a memorandum uh, about uh, controlling uh, uh, money supply in India, uh, and it's beautifully written. Or pick Galbraith, who uh, has probably written more wrong things than any living economist or any economist, uh, but they're beautifully done. Um, the public interest made the other side uh, accessible. Uh, I think one reason was the rule against equations, uh, uh, which I considered a fortunate one. The less fortunate rule was against footnotes. Um, how Irving managed to maintain that and stay married, I don't really know, uh, but somehow uh, he did. Uh, if you want to read uh, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb's piece on footnotes someday, you really, you really should. Um, now, variants of this debate that went on in the pages uh, about the role of the corporation uh, cropped up. There, was, uh, there were articles about whether we need antitrust policy. Uh, 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 basically, the feeling was we don't. Uh, get rid of the Sherman Act. Uh, the power of big business, don't worry, says Morris Edelman. Uh, corporate social responsibility. Um, uh, Daniel Bell, the consumer-oriented free enterprise society no longer satisfies the citizenry, so it will have to change. Uh, and goes on about corporate responsibility. Uh, the power of government, uh, the power of interest groups to influence government by Richard Posner. All of these uh, are covered, and really uh, covered quite brilliantly, uh, uh, whichever side of, uh, of these arguments you're on, uh, in the public interest. And we don't see much of that uh, anymore. Uh, its willingness to devote 
precious pages, I assume precious pages, uh, to the role of the corporation uh, it is attributed, I think, largely but not entirely uh, to Irving Kristol's concern that um, if these new business enterprises didn't establish their legitimacy, uh, they'd find themselves increasingly under government control. Uh, Crystal noticed, uh, as many capitalist triumphalists uh, did not, that, quote, the modern corporation is in, the cr in a critical condition in which we find it today. And then he wrote, no other institution in American history, not even slavery, has ever been so consistently unpopular as has the large corporation with the American public. It was controversial from the outset and it has remained controversial to this day. Now, this day was 1975. That's before we ever heard of Enron, before we ever heard of Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, unfortunately, this critically ill patient uh, that uh, Irving was uh, diagnosing uh, thought itself to be rather in rude good health uh, uh, and made no effort to change its daily routine, the daily routine of board meetings among chums, executive compensation unrelated to performance, uh, and abusing the option system um, that were designed to uh, align management and shareholder interests. This was, um, uh, I noticed that uh, Murray in his paper uh, worries about uh, wage controls or controls uh, I think that if we get the process right, we don't have to worry about the result. And the question in, in executive compensation in America now is whether the process is right. Um, I gave a paper on this subject which infuriated the then CEO of Exxon, um, who uh, said some, something, he made two remarks to the effect. One is, you academics, uh, I suggested that it would, it would be an interesting idea if he revealed his compensation. Uh, to the people who owned his business. Uh, he found this appalling uh, notion because he said then his daughter would get kidnapped, uh, the, the underworld not realizing that he was well compensated unless they read the 10K. Um, and uh, he uh, suggested uh, to me that um, you academics, as he said, I hadn't been an academic for very long, and it was long before, um, don't really understand what it's like to meet a payroll. And I told him, well, uh, I certainly had never met a payroll his size, but I had met some with my own money. Um, he did not take this as a conciliatory response uh, <laughs> and uh, went on to say that um, the compensation process uh, was fair. And then he looked across to another CEO and he said, does the fact that you are my friend affect your decisions at our compensation committee meetings? And the guy said, no. And the fact that you are my friend doesn't affect your decision, I hope, at my compensation committee meetings. And he thought this was a rather complete answer. I think, uh, I think what Irving Crystal was worried about was that the corporation was engaged in practices which threatened its ultimate uh, legitimacy. Um, and, and nobody listened. The interesting thing is nobody listened. Uh, Irving uh, warned that the emergence of the large corporation as what he called a quasi-public institution, which liberal democracy never envisaged, whose birth and existence have been exceedingly troublesome to liberal democracy, and whose legitimacy it has always found dubious, requires us to consider what kinds of reforms are necessary to a vigorous defense. 
Now, the corporate community did not uh, uh, take this uh, warning. Um, and uh, I think he saw what other less nuanced defenders of capitalism uh, did not, uh, uh, that they had institutional problems that uh, needed solution. Which brings me uh, down to the present or almost the present. I won't bore you with a summary of my uh, later articles on corporate governance. Um, the editors were kind enough or foolish enough to publish. Suffice it to say uh, that among my ideas to preserve healthy capital markets and win the battle of ideas over the acceptability of capitalism were stock options to align shareholders and managers' interests. Now, how was I to know about backdating uh, at the time? Um, and then reliance on some sense of shame. This is what comes from hanging around with Gertrude Himmelfarb, uh, uh, not realizing that the supply of shame on, uh, in corporate boardrooms was not uh, excessive. Uh, and uh, so the two devices I had for solving this problem uh, have proved uh, not terribly effective. Um, I think we've come full circle since the public interest uh, provided a forum for th this debate about the virtues of modern-day corporate capitalism. The critics of American capitalism are having a field day in uh, what is called, I think it's called the popular press, um, uh, raising governance issues that go to the legitimacy uh, of the corporation, and they're paving the way for more intensive government um, regulation of day-to-day -day business operations. Now, whether this will uh, be reversed in the face of what appears to be a flight of uh, corporate uh, listings and corporate uh, on stock exchanges from the U.S. to London, uh, we don't yet know. Uh, I, uh, in the questioning empirical tradition of the public interest, I'm not convinced that it's the regulation uh, that's driving people from New York Exchange to London so much as it is the fact that underwriting fees in New York are twice as high as they are in London. This has, uh, so, this has to fact, factor in somewhere, especially since it's the same corporations doing it with the same cost structure. So uh, now before my liberal friend starts nodding yes too vigorously here, I should point out that one reason they are higher is the threat of lawsuits uh, in America, they say, for the underwriters. So I, we don't know the answer to that yet, but we do know that um, we're getting more intensive government regulation, whether Hank Paulson will be able to reverse that, uh, uh, persuading uh, such as John Dingell that regulation isn't a good idea. Uh, I don't really know, uh, but he, he certainly has uh, Bloomberg and McKinsey and Company on his side. Um, any of you who have ever worked with McKinsey and Company? Uh, well, never mind. Um, the defenders of uh, American capitalism now take time uh, from backdating their options uh, and voting themselves uh, compensation packages that combine two things, two important things, inscrutability and a minimum of relationship to performance, whether uh, uh, those people will be the uh, defenders, the optimal defenders uh, of uh, modern corporation capitalism, I very much doubt. And I don't see where that defense uh, is going to emerge if not in something like the public interest. Because what's happening now is economists are trading equations in journals uh, largely unread uh, by policymakers. I mean, it's the kind of stuff they can't even send to their mothers. 
um, to look at. And uh, they're leaving the field to populist critics on the one hand and obtuse corporate on the other. So where is the public interest uh, now that we uh, desperately need it in this debate? Uh, now, how finally did the public interest uh, shape our understanding of the role of the corporation? I think it staked out territory that was previously unoccupied. First, it raised the still unanswered question, just what sort of institution is the modern corporation? Now, legally, the corporation is a, a person entitled to all the constitutional protection of what I would call real people. Uh, second, um, uh, the corporation in structure is a democracy. That is, the shareholders vote, the owners vote, and tell the managers what to do with this asset and this power. And third a, a, a feature, in its relation to government, the modern corporation is supposed to be a creature of government, created by government, and therefore subordinate to government. I think the facts are a little different. Um, the large corporation is not a person, as we ordinarily, as we ordinary persons think of persons. Uh, it's not a democracy, uh, which may be a good thing, since it's difficult to imagine how a large corporation could survive the politicking that would occur were it completely democratic. When you have uh, two nuns buying one share each and showing up at meetings trying to dictate corporate policy, you begin to wonder about the limits of democracy as applied to uh, modern corporations. Um, but nevertheless, it's certainly not a democratic institution. Uh, as for bending the government, uh, as for government bending corporations to its will, we have awful lot of examples uh, of quite the reverse uh, happening. Uh, I happen to uh, have been afflicted with a move from New York, where wealth is created, to Washington, where it's redistributed. Uh, and uh, if you look at uh, K Street uh, and all those people I read about, uh, including in the Weekly Standard, um, you wonder who is bending whom to whose will there. I think the public interest was uh, staked out other territory, and I'll conclude with this. It, it, it was friendly to American capitalism, certainly. Uh, it provided a forum for constructive critics, certainly. Neither those who see the corporation as an unmitigated evil, nor those who see it as unambiguously responsible for the fabulous performance of the American macroeconomy, uh, uh, could be comfortable with a balanced approach of the uh, public interest. Uh, it recognized the contribution of large aggregations of capital to economic growth, but it understood that the governance systems in place are inadequate to permit the complete uh, legitimation of what Crystal dubbed an accidental institution um, with the power to make economic decisions affecting the lives of tens of thousands of citizens. Um, I rather wish, I mean, if I had a, a wish, I would have wished that more CEOs would have subscribed to uh, and read uh, the criticisms in the public interest because I think uh, we would have a much uh, more robust, uh, much uh, less easily criticized uh, uh, system uh, of corporate governance than we now have. Thank you very much. I'll now take critical comments from the rest of the panel. <laughs>
panel now having offered every critical comment that they had. Uh, let, me, let me just say a, f a few words about, I think, the important uh, subject matter of this panel, and then we'll, we'll turn things open to questions and commentary uh, from all of you. Um, and uh, I, I think one of, the, uh, one, of the, one of the interesting comments that, that Professor Seltzer made in his, um, in his discussion uh, that, that maybe I, I would take a little bit of exception with, even though I'm not quite a panel member, although I suppose in my guise as Mar Mar Marty Wiedenbaum, maybe I could, I could sneak in. Um, and that has to do with the degree to which the uh, hieroglyphics that get published in the economics journals eventually percolate into public discourse. And I would say that the economic research does eventually get out and influence policy, or at least some of it. Black and Scholes, Friedman and Schwartz, a generation ago or two generations ago now, did work that eventually had an enormous impact on the way people, people work. People have, people have Black and Scholes' model programmed into their calculators as their trading options in New York and Chicago and London. Um, people, uh, monetary policymakers have internalized the lessons of Friedman and Schwartz, even if in 1962 they hadn't heard about them or understood them. Eventually they did. Um, today we have Cardin Kruger on one side, Grossman and others on the other. Um, also, making, doing research that has significant policy implications about free trade and minimum wages and so forth, and those implications do get fed into the public debate. To some extent it's self-serving of policymakers, they just grab the economic, uh, the economic journal with the results that they like and say that that's what influenced them, where, where in fact they're shopping the results. But to some extent we can see, uh, looking back over history, that some of these ideas really have had an independent influence. Nobody was looking for the Black-Scholes model, or indeed for the Friedman and Schwartz results on monetary policy, when they finally were forced to come to, come to, come to terms with the reality of what those people had found. Um, there is a tendency, I, I think that we've reached a moment where it's very important for conservatives especially, and for everybody indeed, to pay a lot more attention to political economy. Um, conservatives, I think, are uh, somewhat complacent because they notice that the country considers itself to be conservative. You ask, if, you, if you go out and ask people, if a pollster phones people up and asks them whether they're conservatives or liberals, either they'll say they're independent or they'll tend to say that they're conservative. Well, that's very nice, but let's not be fooled by that. Let's think about the, the attitude of one fairly prototypical conservative. Um, I think this story isn't apocryphal, but um, I can't remember this, the, the Senate candidate who was approached about this. But a, an elderly woman approached a, a, a Senate candidate trying to get reelected uh, to his office and said, Senator, please don't let the government get its hands on my social security. <laughs> and I think that a lot, of, a lot of people are, this woman surely considers herself to be a conservative. And I think that a lot of people are conservatives of this variety. And we need, we need to wake up and um, engage in a certain amount of public education. Uh, now, Marty Wiedenbaum, in his, uh, in his, his remarks, uh, read by somebody else, uh, about wage and price controls, tapped into something that I think is crucially important. And that is that economic liberalization has a tendency to be a, a, a victim of its own success. He pointed out that when people actually had to live with wage and price controls, they realized what the costs were. They realized how awful you know, the nanny state could become. And uh, they started to think more clearly. It focused the mind wonderfully. I think that 25 years of relatively successful liberal economic policy have 
carry, carry a, a, a non-trivial risk of turning us into a nation of limousine liberals as we all become very prosperous, we're used to the prosperity that these efficient economic institutions have brought, and we forget about why we put them there. And we start tinkering with them because we want to make it a better and more fair world without recognizing the costs of doing it, um, as various people's friends on K Street are wont to do. Um, there are some serious problems that aren't just going to turn us into complacent lim limousine liberals that are afoot in the world today that we also need to be thinking about. One of them has to do with the winds of economic competition. Free trade means lots of competition. It has, uh, it has an impact on the income redistribution. Uh, Dr. Seltzer isn't the only person in this room, I think, who worries about what those effects might be. Let's remember um, Abraham Lincoln's speeches to Cooper's Union and his speech in New Haven as he was becoming a viable candidate for the president in 1860. Up until that point, the main, the main argument made by the abolitionists about slavery was a moral one. Slavery is an immoral impediment to human freedom. It, it denies the basic dignity of the person. Lincoln harnessed another argument. He said, you know, if you're a, you're a northern worker working in a factory right here, you think that slave labor picking cotton in the south doesn't threaten you, but you know what? They're starting to move the slaves into factories in Charleston, South Carolina and in other places. And pretty soon, you're going to be competing with somebody who earns slave wages, literally, and watch out. And it resonated with people because they could see the effect um, Fogel has talked about the impact on people's, people's well-being using measures of height and other things. That in the decades just before the American Civil War, in the North, welfare was declining. And people were worse off. And worse off because they were competing with this institution of slavery. You had a, a, a bad and unhealthy mixture of free market institutions on the one hand, free trade and so forth, and utterly the utterly unfree institution of slavery on the other hand that had people working like slaves. And that was an extremely unhealthy mixture. Well, today, unfree workers in China and elsewhere working for slaves' wages um, are putting an enormous amount of pressure on people in this country. Factories are closing. Wages for lots of people are stagnant. Manufacturing wages in this country basically are about where they were in 1973 in real terms. Um, there's, been, there's been a big impact from this Un, uh, this unstable mixture of hyper-freedom in trade and extreme unfreedom in, in political freedom and other freedoms in other parts of the world, where we're now linked by trade. What was happening in communist China during the Cultural Revolution was terrible, but we were insulated from it. Today, what happens in China may be less extreme than it was during the Cultural Revolution, but we're, we, go to, we go to Walmart and we're affected by it immediately. Things that are happening there have an immediate impact on prices and wages and income distributions here. And that's something we need to be thinking about as we're thinking about economic policy. Another point that we have to, we have to deal with is that the government right now seems to be able to borrow huge sums of money without raising short-term interest rates. Now, whether that's due to currency manipulation or some other factor in other, in other countries that are, that are um, trading with us, I hate to bring up China again, but they do seem to have their currency pegged to ours, and that doesn't appear to be an equilibrium phenomenon. It's a very odd developmental model. It's having a big effect. Part of the reason that pork, bar uh, pork barrel spending, excuse me, earmarks, and other, other issues have become so prevalent in Washington is that it's cheap and easy just to borrow more because the interest rates don't budge. 
And so the price signal that should be coming back and, and hitting the political system, oh, you borrow more, the price goes up. The price of what you're, you're, you're using a scarce good isn't there. It feels like the, the good of public spending isn't scarce. You can borrow infinitely. Ask yourself what the average person would do if they had the credit rating of the U.S. government. What would their debt look like? So um, that's an issue. We have to worry about whether this is currency manipulation or something else. But it's a serious issue, and it's going to come and bite us if we don't deal with it. Um, another issue has to do with CEO salaries, um, which, which brings us to our actual panelist. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, we, we haven't arranged for a CEO salary for you, Dr. Dr. Seltzer, but you raised, you raised important issues. Um, as, so one explanation for the escalation in CEO salaries is that as companies devour one another and get bigger, they're harder to run. CEOs substitute for price signals inside the command economy of, of a firm, and so the return to CEO skill goes up as these companies get bigger. And that's why we see higher CEO salaries. Well, that's a theory. It comes off of the hieroglyphics of the economic pages of the economic journals, but it makes a certain amount of sense. Or maybe, as you can find in other hieroglyphic articles in the journals, um, the CEOs are exploiting the institutional weaknesses of limited liability companies. So the second story is um, you can uh, you. It's very hard to, find, to to mount a challenge to a current set of leaders in a, com in a company. You have to get a majority of the stockholders to vote the rascals out. And if you do, what's going to happen? Well, you'll have another slate that's competing with them. Who's on the slate? Why more CEOs who went to the same business schools and come from the same, the same framework of mind and who will do exactly the same thing as the people you're voting out? So why bother? And this is, this is the essential argument that's being made in the academic journals these last 20 20 years or so, uh, Vishni and Schleifer and Spiegel and other people have written about this issue. Um, and if that's the case, then maybe something's broken with the limited liability company. And we need, to, uh, we need to get on the same train that Thomas Edison was on 100 years ago when he sued General Electric and lost here in, in the uh, Chancery Court in Mercer County. Um, and think about maybe ways to reform the limited liability corporation in ways that make the leadership more accountable. Here we have the eldritch phenomena of labor in the form of multi-millionaire CEOs exploiting capital uh, owned by working people who's put their, who, whose retirement funds are invested in the firms. So it really sort of, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't inter interact well with our usual intuition about labor capital issues, but it's still important and we still need to be thinking about it. Um, so we should stir ourselves from our complacency the disappearance of the public interest needs to be a moment of renewal in our thinking about economic policy. Can, can so, I comment on that uh, rather long list? Um, starting at the end with the CEO salaries, listening to you makes me more nervous about my criticism um, because I, I don't see a threat to the limited liability company. And I don't, uh, words like multi million salaries. Uh, don't frighten me. I'm going to dinner with some Goldman Sachs people tonight. Um, the, it's the process, not the result, that should concern us. Uh, I mean, I don't really care how much anybody makes doing whatever they do, with the exception of the kind of people who John DiIulio would like to put in jail. The, uh, it seems to me we have to, if the public interest was about anything, it was about practical solutions to some of these policy problems. Uh, listening, I was reminded of that wonderful novel, uh, 
Portnoy's complaint, where after about 250 pages of whining about his sex life, the analyst finally says, now can we begin? Uh, and it seems to me that now's the time to begin. Uh, it should be possible to find ways to link uh, corporate to link compensation to performance. We haven't done it well yet. I think we're getting closer to it. <clears throat> I think that to the extent that we now have audit committees, for example, and compensation committees that are by regulatory statute, I know that's supposed to be a bad thing, independent of the managers of the company, uh, with access to, uh, with their ability to hire their own consultants, um, uh, to advise them. I think we're getting closer, and because we're putting people in jail, fines don't mean anything. Um, jail focuses the mind of, uh, of executives. Uh, I think we're getting closer to solving that problem, and I would like to solve it without getting rid of uh, the limited liability uh, company. Uh, as for... Um, uh, uh, Manufacturing wages the same as they are in 1973. All I would say is be careful with those numbers. Uh, there are many aspects to compensation other than wages, and there are many parts of the economy other than manufacturing uh, that uh, one should look at. That doesn't mean we don't, in my judgment, have uh, some real problems of uh, increasing inequality that uh, we ought to be looking at. If for no other reason, then it sort of violates people's... Uh, sensibilities uh, about what's going on. Uh, when you have uh, simultaneously uh, the management of Delta at a single meeting voting to cut uh, employees' pensions while bulletproofing their own, uh, there's something wrong with that. There's something uh, uh, I can't tell you, um, Gertrude Himmelfog could tell you. Uh, um, there's something that, that offends uh, one sense, and uh, I think we have to fix that. Now, um, interest rates. I always love when people uh, talk about interest rates uh, seeming to know the driving forces behind interest rates. Uh, if I knew that, I wouldn't be wasting my time sitting here. Um, the, uh, I think you said short-term interest rates should go up. I don't know quite why they should go up. Um, I do know that the credit markets are pretty good at distinguishing. Ford went to the market to borrow, what, $18 billion and had to hock all its factories in order to get it. So people who do credit risks, so on. Now, the, we, the real question, finally, with China, uh, the Weekly Standard is particularly unsympathetic to the Chinese regime, as many of you know, and for the same reasons that I am. But uh, as far as the economics go, I mean, one of the things that's going on in the world uh, due to free trade is an enormous decrease in inequality in the world, which is due to free trade. Uh, the notion that um, uh, workers in China are uh, unfree, I don't know. Uh, certainly, um, uh, something like 350 million Chinese have moved from the farms to the cities to take these jobs. They weren't conscripted to do that. Uh, that's all of Europe moving somewhere, if you want some orders of magnitude. Uh, I'm rather ambivalent about it. I, uh, I go to Walmart a lot because mostly when I have to write columns, uh, the statistics don't really seem to me to tell me what's going on in the economy. So I like to hang around Walmarts 
uh, in Glenwood Springs, for instance, near my house in Colorado. Uh, and it's really an interesting experience if you go there. I mean, one of the things is it's this marvelous uh, uh, Hispanic aspiration to uh, have uh, the possessions of what they see on American uh, television and, and able to afford it there. Um, so uh, that's one thing. And, and you see the benefits, twofold benefits of it. One is the cheap T-shirts and trainers and sneakers and stuff like that. Uh, the other is the people working there who queue up every time a Walmart opens uh, for the jobs there, which pay above minimum wages, uh, um, far above minimum wages. Uh, and... Um, I come away ambivalent about what's going on uh, in this world of free trade. There are enormous beneficiaries and there are people who suffer. Now, I think in devising policy, we should devise, divide the sufferers into two classes. Um, not like the poor, the undeserving, and the deserving, but there is a class called auto workers, which consists of people, union monopolists who extorted uh, huge amounts of money from the American public over the years and who now find that they're not as well off as they thought they would be. Um, I, I don't get terribly excited about that. Uh, and then there is the person who uh, sewed T-shirts in North Carolina or all her life sent her kids to school, paid taxes, and suddenly find she has no work. Um, I think that it, as a policy matter what we have to do is transfer some of the winnings to the losers. Some of the benefits I get in Walmarts as a shopper to the person who has been hurt by what I'm doing for no reason of his or her own. I think Bill Clinton was on to something when he said that if we don't accomplish that, the opposition to change will continue to mount. We've got to find some way to uh, um, uh, ameliorate this kind of uh, distributional consequence. For me, it's a rather simple thing. It's called uh, an import duty. Uh, now, I know there's something out there called free trade, um, and you're right to talk about free trade when you have currency manipulation is kind of a strange <laughs> formulation, but I don't see why we can't devise methods. We've tried job training, things like that. We don't know how to do that. Uh, we have a bill that allows a person who's dispossessed by trade um, to uh, get government assistance, I think, for two years, up to 50% of their last salary. Uh, 1,400 people have managed to fill out the forms. Uh, so we don't know how to do that, but I think we should find ways. The policy issues, as far as I'm concerned, are how to transfer some of the gains from the winners to the uh, unfortunate uh, losers. So if there were a public interest still, uh, what I would like to see is the policy prescriptions uh, for doing these things. And I, I don't see that coming out of the academic debates that you mentioned. And I, I think you're quite right. I overlooked all of that in, in uh, grabbing for a while. Um, uh, there are some interesting things coming out of uh, academic life, not including, I think, a lot of, uh, in terms of practical impact, a lot of the stuff on monetary policy, since I don't know any central bank uh, that uh, targets money supply. Uh, I think that's just because we all love Milton Friedman, so we love that part of Milton Friedman as well, uh, whereas the really important parts of Milton Friedman are on television, um, uh, uh, talking about freedom. 
But in any event, uh, it would be good if we could if we could have a place where uh, accessible solutions uh, could be developed. Anyhow, I went on too long, but I was supposed to do that because we don't have anybody uh, here to use up the time, and the coffee isn't ready. Well, if if I could if I could just uh, engage, engage in a little bit more discussion, I promise we... not to answer. So that they no, can. you need to promise that, but we'll we'll include more people in, in just a moment. Uh, I guess I can't I can't resist uh, making making the observation that Professor Bernanke uh, at least would believe that at least one academic is having some impact on monetary policy uh, even today. But um, is he targeting money supply? No, I don't think he's targeting oh. money supply. But I think he is influenced by what's going on in the economics journals or what at least the piece of it that he's published. Hmm. Um, and. If we were to, to go back to the, to the central issues raised, um, I think the first and foremost question about free trade in, in the international environment is whether the trade is free. And uh, you know, as, as Gandhi once said of Western civilization in a somewhat offhanded and uncharitable measure uh, way, uh, if, if, you ask us, if you ask someone about free trade, I think the right answer would be, I think it would be a good idea. It would be nice if China would allow sufficient political freedom <coughs> that the workers in China were actually free. And then we could have some free trade, and that would be a wonderful thing. Um, I'm reminded a little bit of the case of Argentina 100 years ago. It was one of the richest countries in the world. The place was run by liberals. It was run on free market principles. They had free trade. They exploited all of the, uh, all of the ideas that were actually, many of them, already well-known by economists. And uh, they did very well. And they made one mistake. They didn't sell their ideas to the public. They did an expert job of running the Argentine economy right up through the 1930s. They managed to avoid many of the worst, uh, worst ravages of the Great Depression, in part by being very shrewd about negotiating effective trade agreements and so forth. Wonderfully run economic policy, terribly, terribly sold to the public. The Argentine public believed that these people were thieves and they were stealing the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they started to support populists. And now Argentina is about the 47th ranked country in terms of per capita income worldwide. And it's been a disaster. The populace took over and people got their way. But if the liberals then, 100 years ago, had done a much better job of selling their ideas, that catastrophe might have been avoided. Uh, that's something for us to think about um, as we're looking about at the economy. I would agree that in the, the international economy is probably reducing income inequality in spite of the lack of freedom in places like China. Although I'm not sanguine about the long-run prospects for China unless they become more free. Um, that said, it's not enough that people actually be better off. That was happening in Argentina. You need to make the intellectual case. And you need to make it not just to the intellectual elite, but you need to make it to the public. You need the public to understand freedom. Uh, in all of its guises, in particular freedom as it, in, as it interacts with the market, or you're going to run into trouble. Um, okay, with that said, I'll invite uh, Dr. Seltzer to respond again no. if he likes. And, and I'd, let's rather, I'd rather hear, uh, let other people point out what Professor Mead. Uh, oh, here comes a mic. I can hear you. <laughs> You've, you've both spoken, uh, and Professor Wiedenbaum as well, about challenges to capitalism that might arise from a sense that it's illegitimate. Uh, and one of those aspects is rising inequality, which is, mention has been made of. 
My sense is that isn't a serious problem politically. You know, Paul Krugman is worried about inequality, but it's not the thing that, that really agitates the public. The public is more concerned about unemployment, lack of apparent opportunity, and there the public is really concerned with the impact of globalization, which you've certainly alluded to. And my question is, uh, is there, you've already also spoken to how one might ameliorate the stress of globalization, which I think is certainly something one should think about. My question is, did the public interest ever get into this? Is this a new problem that wasn't really addressed? My sense is that it largely is a new problem. During the time when uh, the public interest was operating, the dominant questions were how to manage the American domestic economy. And we weren't really focused on the problem of globalization, uh, the pressure that freedom puts on us, as you say. And the question is, um, can one imagine what would have been a public interest response to that? Is there such a thing? Since I like to think I would have written it, let me imagine it. Um, first of all, world trade was not a big deal for America for a very long time. Still isn't, really. Um, second, uh, the notion of uh, uh, increased risk, increased volatility, increased uncertainty about your future uh, is something that um, – how do I put this delicately in this forum um, – that uh, – would not uh, attract tenured academics as a real issue. Um, so I wouldn't have expected much of a response from that. But I would have expected, but I think the public interest in the sort of pragmatic concern about the legitimization of capitalism. Uh, is inequality a problem? I could write a whole bunch of papers as to really why it isn't. It'll fix itself uh, with education, et cetera. We all know. Uh, um, I think right and left agree that uh, one of the problems is the unskilled, and so we have to improve the education system, and how do we do that, and all of that. But the fact of the matter is that it is um, – uh, you mentioned Argentina. One of the problems in Argentina was a, a very great inequality of income distribution. On average, the economy was doing great, but there were a lot of – I believe they were called shirtless ones – a lot of dispossessed uh, and a very, very uh, – snotty uh, elite. Um, that's what worries me. Now, do I worry about it as an economist? No, I worry about it as a political economist, about political economy. I think what the public interest would have done, first of all, I don't think it would have been a prisoner to um, the notion that somehow free trade is a wonderful thing without trying to define what the components of free trade were, as, as you just did when you talked about currency manipulation. I think it would have tried to find practical solutions to uh, the distributional consequences uh, created by free trade. I think that um, probably uh, the public interest would have been more concerned maybe than I am about the relationship between free trade and the authoritarian character uh, of some of our trading partners and what we might do to use our tra our cloud as a huge market to induce change. Uh, you see, one of the things is that the people who want to sell things to China have a lot more to say about policy than the people who want to buy things from China. I go to Walmart to buy things from China. Boeing goes to the White House because it wants to sell things to China so that you have a disparity of political power uh, in terms of inducing change. I think those are the kind of things that the public interest would have tried to come to grips with, uh, even if it meant abandoning 
this dogmatic, well, free trade is a wonderful uh, thing. Right? That's, that's my guess. I want to make a couple of comments uh, from the corporate side, if you will. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I didn't know one of you was here. Sorry. <laughs> We're everywhere. Um, I, I, first of all, I wanted to compliment the presentations, but I wanted to take two small issues with Professor Seltzer. Uh, one is with regard to your comment about um, having more readers and subscribers to the public interest on the corporates, among corporate executives. I, I think what was really lacking, if you're going to get serious about corporate issues, was having writers, not, not readers. Because I think that academics notwithstanding, there, there is a whole, how would you say, discipline of running corporations. And I think, for instance, a writer of the quality of Peter Drucker, who, who was very, very eloquent in, in stating both the problems and the raison d'etre of corporations, would have been a, a good addition to the mix, partly because um, you have what is a ubiquitous thing, namely that if you get a bunch of academics together, their favorite topic will be the shortcomings of the corporation. If you get a bunch of corporation guys together, their favorite topic will be the shortcomings of the education system, top to bottom. Okay. By the way, Peter Drucker was well represented in the public interest. I just, in the oh, summary, so I did. Yeah. In the summary, I did. I just didn't include it because, for a lot of reasons. You know, I, I had I had been a I'm subscriber sorry. in the '70s, and I, I rather thought that was the case, but mm -hmm. I, I needed. But uh, make a second point. I I, I think your comments. Uh, you're a little bit off base on your perception of the issue of, corp of uh, corporate salaries, uh, CEO salaries. Um, I, I think the issue, uh, I think you're right. The process is the issue, but I don't think that is the problem with the perception. Uh, no one, claim, no one com complains about Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan, guys who, in my opinion, deserve all the money they get, which is a lot more than a lot of corporate guys. I think the, the issue more is one of whether these guys in the academic mindset are worthy, okay, uh, are worthy of this kind of corporation. And, and the, the, uh, the criticism coming especially from a sector of the economy, which is number one, the only one that has tenure, and number two, which today uh, frequently makes up to ten times what the average American worker comes makes is a little bit is a little bit dicey. Well, so well, I, let, let me uh, just respond. First of all, uh, Tiger Woods and uh, we're dealing here. I'll give you a technical answer. We're dealing here with economic rents and how you distribute economic rents. Nobody knows, but from a public perception point of view, Tiger Woods' compensation is closely related to his performance. Forget whether it whether it really is or not. I mean, but the fact is that his uh, A Rod's compensation is related to his performance, um, as the public sees it, and they see uh, a, a Jake Plummer benched 
uh, in Denver uh, because his performance stinks and he probably won't have get a, won't, will have trouble getting a job next year, so on. So they see that link. They don't see, and I must confess, I have trouble finding the link between uh, executive compensation and uh, performance. If you believe the executive is, key, is worth a lot because he's key to the performance of the company, there are, the data really don't show that there is any real relationship. Now, those data are extraordinarily difficult. It's hard to value options. It's, uh, don't get me wrong. That's why I, I try to avoid that whole issue. If you could get the process in a way that people would consider fair, they consider it fair. Tiger Woods wins all these things, and people pay him a lot of money for winning. Here you have some guys taking General Motors down the toilet with one terrible decision after another, and their compensation is not affected. Now, we do have a, there's a plus in all of this, that the average tenure of CEOs who don't perform is shortening. That is, it is now getting to be a much more risky job than it used to be, which I think is a, uh, a result of some of the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, reforms that make the corporation, uh, that make the directors more independent. Um, if I could just add uh, one quick remark. I, I, I think the question performs a huge service in that it highlights uh, the huge impact that the education system has on the economy. And I think that, that really ought to be, I mean, it's, it's one of the next, uh, next panels, but it really ought to be wrapped into our whole thinking about the economy. I'll just restrict myself to the, the observation that we listen to Friedman about monetary policy and we haven't listened to him about education policy. Uh, yes, sir. I wanted to make a point to um, Professor Stelzer, which I think would be much better made by Michael Novak, although he's not, um, of course, with us, which is um, this that you mentioned en passant, that the, uh, the corporation is treated as a person. And, of course, that is absolutely true. It's a person in law, and you've, you expressed a fair amount of skepticism about that. But I think it's a very important philosophical point underlying your criticisms, uh, which I, I totally agree with, about the modern corporation, that although established as a person in law, it constantly fails to be a person in fact, in, in, in its moral relations. And Michael Novak has written a book on, on the nature of the corporation in which he draws heavily on the Christian and Roman law tradition from which this concept of a person is derived, and I think we have to recognize that we are, that that concept is fundamental, not just to our dealings with each other, but to the whole unspoken enterprise of Western civilization. It's, you know, our, what, what we stand for is the personalization of the world. A person is a thing which is accountable for its actions rather than simply an object proceeding according to the laws of nature. And that idea of accountability is, governs our understanding of political systems, our understanding of relations between each other, our understanding of law, so it has all the history of Roman law and the Christian church behind it. And I think, really, I mean, this, I suppose to shape this as a question, I just would ask you whether you agree that that is the, uh, the aspect of the corporation that has to be vitalized and improved, that sense of it as a, a 
a fully accountable personal entity rather than moving away from that concept. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree because it's always easy to agree, Roger, with, with the notion of accountability. Uh, but the question is how? The policy question. What, what, do, what do you, th I mean, we can we see how we can make, let's call it a real person, accountable for his actions if we chose to. Now, we often don't choose to in society, but what, what is the mechanism, what do you mean by accountability in the case of this kind of constructed person? That, that's exactly the question that you should be asking yourself, and I think you are well, asking yourself. I thought yourself, I'd ask you. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're, you are saying that it's not a matter of the result but the process, right. and I think I agree with that. It's a process which is answerable to those people who are affected by it. Um, and the problem is that, as you, I think, in some of your examples point out, there are people affected by decisions who are not either consulted or whose interests are, are marginalised. And um, it, it's, if one was to reform the corporation, it would be in order to incorporate those interests into the decision-making process. That would be one part of it. But you see, this gets to a debate, as you know, is going on in Britain. I was thinking in terms of accountability to the owners of the enterprise. Yeah. Uh, there is a broader view in terms of, that's thought of by more leftish people in terms of accountability to, quote, stakeholders. Mm. No, I was... No, I assume I, you're not buying into no, that. No, because stakeholders are self-appointed. Right. And, right. and indeed, this is a way of leaching out accountability from things. Exactly. Okay. You. Oh, me. Uh, I, uh, I was going to ask Erwin, uh, first I'm intrigued that the discussion of inequality has uh, come up here since the public interest devoted so many articles to saying it wasn't such a problem. Right. And we had all sorts of ways of doing it. Uh, we pointed out the fact there was social mobility, the people at the bottom are not always the same. We pointed to the role of education and so on. Uh, but, uh, Despite all that, I think if it were being published today, Adam Wilson can comment on this, I think it would have to address the subject again and perhaps more seriously. And in that point, and that was my point to Erwin, uh, and the discussion of it's only the process that matters. Uh, when the scale of compensation is as great as it is, in some cases, reported in the papers and so on, uh, doesn't it also affect other things? Doesn't it affect... Uh, the ability to pay salaries uh, for, down below. I mean, is, is the scale to be totally ignored when it reaches the kind of dimensions it does? Recently, I saw something in the Wall Street Journal to, the, to that effect, and I also saw something to the effect that uh, the head of the biggest uh, software company in, uh, in um, India makes 100000 a year, and uh, one of his competitors makes $7 million. You would think in America... And I remember the difference in uh, compensation. Maybe it's been changing between Europe and America. Something is peculiar there. And, you know, uh, uh, nothing came up in your discussion to explain why the American compensation should be so extraordinarily out of line. Uh, not that I have an explanation for it, but it's, uh, <laughs> that's an issue, as well as the issue of does the scale not have an impact? You see, I, th I think if the public interest were publishing today and I had to get Adam to squeeze in something of mine, 
I wouldn't be so concerned about the inequality as about what seems to be declining mobility. I've always felt inequality, the hell with it. Uh, it'll get fixed by mobility, but we seem to have also, at least the early data, God help us, but the data seem to show decline in mobility. Uh, as for uh, the question of the magnitude, you know, if you get into that, you're going to have a much worse problem than if you don't get into it. That's kind of, I think, what Irving would say. Uh, it, it, does the magnitude offend some people, the sheer numbers? And boy, you're going to see, I think this is going to be a debate now in the next couple of weeks when the bonus figures start coming out on Wall Street and the Porsche dealers start gloating and the co-ops start going for $100 million and Klimps start selling for $139 million. Uh, um, you're going to, you're going to uh, see that debate. I don't get too troubled by that. Why there is a difference with Europe? I think there's a difference with Europe, first of all, because uh, using the European model as something I want to repair to for my macroeconomic performance isn't my first choice uh, because I don't like double-digit unemployment and I don't like economic stagnation. Uh, I think there is uh, less risk in being a uh, CEO in Europe. There used to be. This is closing, by the way, this gap. Um, second, I think there are greater uh, social pressures in smaller communities uh, than there are in America. There's less tolerance of inequality in Europe. All the things that uh, are dooming Europe to uh, oblivion, in my judgment, uh, in the 21st century. So I wouldn't use that as a model. I wouldn't worry about the absolute level simply because worrying about it is going to get you in more trouble than not worrying about it. Uh, and I would concentrate on uh, getting a process that is uh, seen as legitimate. That's all we can do. We can't, can't do more. Professor George. Uh, thank you, John. This is a question for you, really a request for clarification. When you use the terms, uh, you, the term liberal and cognate terms in connection with economics in Latin American countries like Chile and Argentina and talk about the success of liberal policies in the uh, Argentine economy for that long period of time, are, are you using that term in, in, it, in its Latin American sense? In other words, what would... John, what would John Stuart Mill do? Yeah, right, okay. So the policies that you're talking about as liberal policies there, we might well describe as conservative policies. Undoubtedly, right. I mean, there's... Conservatives often call free market policies liberal policies. Okay. All right. Just, just to be clear that's on that. That's what I was doing. Okay. So when you were... When I referred to limousine liberals, I was talking about something else. Exactly. Okay. Sir. If I might ask a question that will tie together... Oh, hang on. There's a microphone on its way. If I might ask a question that would tie together Mario Procaccino, education, uh, inequality, how do you get a process that addresses rent control in New York City? Practicality. What, what, well, go ahead. I, I lived in New York City, and I, I know all about rent control in New York City. And what you do is you uh, nibble away at it. You begin to make it less and less relevant by decontrolling this thing, by, because you're not, you're not going to, that's New York City. I mean, it's part of its charm. 
is that it has this stupid thing in place called rent control. Uh, it makes it kind of unique. It gives you another system to subvert in your daily life. Uh, and so what I would be inclined to do is, oh, you exempt apartments of this size. You say if you, if you move out, then it gets decontrolled. And besides, we're going to let it go up by X. That's, that's what you do. You don't put it to a vote. Uh, you just make it less relevant and sort of enjoy it. I would, uh, I, I would just add that the uh, elderly woman who is worried about her Social Security being confiscated by the government, she has a rent-controlled apartment <laughs> in New York City. Uh, I think that the practical answer to your question is probably something along the lines of educate upstate New York and hope that they get really mad. Uh, educate upstate New York? Well, they, they don't <laughs> okay, They voted enough. for Hillary Clinton the last time. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, sir, in the back. My question really is more in the form of a comment. And it, what I find interesting is that in the panels of yesterday and today, that the one term that's not defined is public. And the concern or the question that I have is, when, you was, when Professor Seltzer was talking about the corporate community, the question of whether that was the public, that public interest was addressing itself to, and were they in fact reading and responding. And, it, and then the follow-up of Robbie George said is this question of the terminology that's being used. And I, I wonder who is the public that public interest was addressing, and what was the public in the term that was used in the, in the title of the magazine, the public that it was addressing. So, and I think one of the comments I would make is that we've, we've heard that it was more domestic in its origin, and the questions that are arising today are certainly more international in their uh, consequences. So who is this public that the magazine was directed to, and who is the public that was reading it? Ask the guy who knows. <laughs> that there is a larger interest that supersedes a lot of individual interests. Uh, uh, working class interests, capitalist interests, uh, what is it, the government employees' interests, and so on. Uh, and I can't give a, uh, a good definition. I, can, uh, I think it's easier to define a partial interest, which seems to be undermining a public interest, uh, Erwin tried with uh, the, the wages of unionized auto workers, uh, but uh, how to do the alternative, you know, how to give a, a general and abstract and working definition of the public interest, I don't know. But the notion was that there is such a thing and that uh, 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 policy is not simply a concatenation, a compilation of uh, a group of partial interests. Who was your intended readership? Was it the corporate executives who were developing this? Intended readership. Well, I don't know if there was. An intended readership was uh, an assumption of an enlightened public. There we get to a public again. And uh, it um, was never very large. It, uh, maybe it hit 6,000 at one point, <laughs> 5,000. But it, it seemed to be spread around among academics and people working in government and some corporate people. And uh, 
Uh, some people connected with none of these. And that was about the best we could do. Yeah. We've got time for one more question, sir. Um, let me ask one question. As a non-economist and a corporate employee, um, the question has arisen here, seems to be the implication that corporate salaries are somehow cheating the, um, the shareholders. Um, the question I ask, as I say, as a corporate employee, is do economists have a good non-religious model to apportion who contributes how much value that's coming into the corporation. My wife has pointed out to me that people will go and pay huge amounts of money to see their favorite celebrities perform and that these people are in some way therefore generating the value, but nobody's ever bought a refrigerator based on who was CEO of GE. Um, so the question, and, and let me give a quick anecdote. When I worked for Avaya, we had a big corporate assembly where we got a new um, VP of marketing and he, he took questions and one of the questions was, are we going to continue to make such and such a product? And the man said, oh, yes, that's a magnificent product. You know, I just put on a tux the other night to get an award for that product. Do you know anything about that product? And the little man in the audience said, yes, I invented it. So how do we apportion how much, how much value the CEOs are actually creating as opposed to how much value their employees are creating? Well, the way we look at CEOs, I think, is... Um the increment to shareholder value uh, that we think uh, they contribute. Now, very often you have this uh, wonderful phenomenon of a new CEO being named and the stock dropping 6%. Um, that's considered uh, not a very good idea from the CEO's point of view. The, um, uh, the answer is we don't know the answer to that. I mean, we know there's a supply out there of workers of various sorts, uh, and uh, there's demand for workers of various sorts. And in that kind of imperfect market, out of that imperfect market emerges uh, what you might want to call distributive shares. But I, I can't answer that question. Uh, we do know that in a fully employed economy, if a worker feels he's not getting his marginal revenue product, he goes somewhere else. Um, and uh, we're reasonably content with that. Uh, is that perfect? No, but I can't think of anything better, and I can think of a lot of things worse. Anyhow, thanks very much. Thank you all.